it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, August 16th, 2022. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I am your host, Guy Benson. So happy to have you here every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time or around the clock on our podcast for free on demand at GuyBensonShow.com. You can follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, so that's easy. In addition to the website, GuyBensonShow.com, sort of intuitive. And we always encourage people, if you can, to listen live as we air, podcast as a backup, and one place where you can now listen to the entire show every day as we air. It's our affiliate WIBX Utica, New York. They were sort of test driving the show for an hour a day, not the full three hours. Well, they've now taken the plunge all three hours. So welcome officially, formally, Utica to the Guy Benson Show experience. As of this week, we are thrilled to have you here and a couple other stations percolating out there, a few things in the works that we'll be telling you about in the weeks to come. So come on in. The water's fine. Join the Guy Benson Show radio family. If you don't know that much about me, of course, I host this show. It's named after me. That makes sense. I'm also a Fox News contributor on the TV side of things. To that end, I'll be on with Kennedy tonight, my very close friend. What a fabulous person. Near the top of her show, just after 7 p.m. Eastern Time tonight, Fox Business Network. Hope to see you there. I'm also the political editor at townhall.com, where I write political analysis on a daily basis. Let's tell you about today's show and the lineup. Byron York of the Washington Examiner. He will be here later on this hour. In the next hour, Miranda Devine of the New York Post will be our guest. And in the final hour, Eli Lake of Commentary Magazine, as I want to dig a little bit deeper into the very disturbing attack against author and novelist Salman Rushdie on U.S. soil just the other day, apparently inspired by the Iranian regime and a decades-old fatwa against Mr. Rushdie from the Ayatollah, plus what that means for U.S. foreign relations and foreign policy vis-a-vis Iran, and also a few other things from that neck of the woods, from that region that I want to ask Eli about because he's very smart on those issues and very up to speed, follows them closely. But as we come on the air here today, I would like to make you aware of the president's schedule. President Joe Biden is expected today to come back from his beach vacation in South Carolina to, bri- to briefly, and I mean briefly, stop by the White House to sign into law the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. And then he's going to take the whole entourage back onto vacation to Delaware. So just a hop, skip, and a jump, temporarily going to the White House for this event to sign the bill into law. Now, just as we did a number of weeks ago, when the president went up to Massachusetts just to give a speech about climate change and the emergency of climate change, 
I asked at the time, kind of a superficial point, but a point nonetheless, did that have to happen elsewhere? Couldn't he have just done that on the White House campus, as opposed to all of the jet fuel and choppers and limousines and SUVs and the whole entourage going all the way, what, like an hour and a half in one direction, just to turn around a few minutes later uh, later and come back to Washington, D.C., what was the carbon footprint of that little political piece of optics, that photo op? And how does that jibe with the point that he's making about the fierce urgency of climate change? I think you might ask something similar. Is it really necessary for the president to make a pit stop at the White House to sign a climate change bill to then immediately jump off to his next vacation location with all of the pieces and moving parts that accompany presidential movement? A drop in the bucket, perhaps, in the large scheme of things, but so is this law that he's about to sign. And it's interesting how they're now touting it overwhelmingly as a climate change bill as opposed to an inflation reduction bill, which is what they named the legislation. Because for the purposes of politics, they wanted the news coverage during the debate to reflect the name of the bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. And now, once the thing gets done, they're going to say, look at what we've done for the climate. Now, the problem is, it will have, just like it has a negligible impact on inflation, it will also have a negligible impact on the climate. Because whatever we're doing here in the United States, and it's relatively small ball stuff, still very expensive, it is just totally swamped by what's happening in developing and huge economies in countries like China and India, with a combined population of billions, with a B. So we're making decisions here, I think very myopically, about what the United States can do to lead or whatever on the issue of climate change that even under like the sunniest scenarios doesn't do a damn thing on climate change or the planet because of what's happening in other countries, and they are not going to hamstring their emerging economies for this kind of stuff. Now, you can make a case that it's worth doing anyway to show leadership and on principle or what have you and do our little part. I think you then have to look at the trade-offs. But I think by going deep down the climate change debate sort of realm here, we're almost letting the Democrats off the hook. Because if we do that, We're now shifting the discussion to the turf that they now want to fight on, as opposed to the thing that they named the bill after, which is inflation reduction in an era of rampant and painful inflation. 8.5% year over year in July. 9.1% year over year in June. Even with that slight dip, as we've talked about, attributable largely to fuel costs coming down because of a decrease in demand, Other commodities like electricity and rent and food, those costs, like feeding your family, that cost continued to go up and up and up last month. This administration, the people leading it, told us that their last multi-trillion dollar spending binge would not cause or fuel inflation. They were absolutely dead wrong about that. 
And we've all been feeling it. We've been feeling those consequences ever since. Then they told us the inflation, once it showed up and kept growing, it would be transitory. Very temporary. Don't worry about it. It's just like a little blip. It'll all smooth out. That turned out to be dead wrong. Now they're spending, what is it, $750 billion more dollars. I mean, they're still just willy-nilly spending money. We're in the middle of huge inflation, and the government is addicted. They cannot stop. So here's even more spending. They're saying it's inflation reduction. But then you have the Wharton study and CBO and other nonpartisan analysts saying, no, it's not going to do that. It might have a tiny increase on inflation in the near term. But overall, it's basically nothing. This does nothing on inflation. I've been making the point. Bernie Sanders, a socialist, he doesn't even believe the talking point. He called it the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, and then he cited nonpartisan stats for why he thinks it's a misnomer. Obviously it is. They wanted you for a little while to think that a bunch of spending would reduce inflation. So they called it inflation reduction. Polling shows that the overwhelming majority of the American people do not believe that. They believe it will either increase inflation or have no effect. And only like 12 or 13 percent of Americans are gullible enough or at least claim to be gullible enough to believe that this thing is going to reduce inflation. Like this bill, this spending is going to have that impact. But that's what they did. That's what they called it. That was the name and the moniker that they came up with. No one forced them to, right? This was a choice that they made. That's the standard that they should be forced to live by here. Now, even if inflation slows or cools for a period of time, or we don't know what's going to happen in the coming months, the idea that it's going to be attributable to this bill is laughable. Because even when Democrats top Democrats of the administration, when they're asked about this, how's it going to impact things in the near term? How's it going to help bring down costs in the near term for Americans? Their answers are terrible. And we played you a few of them yesterday on this show in the first hour. You can go back and check out the podcast if you missed it at GuyBensonShow.com. Jennifer Granholm, the the energy secretary, she tried to tie it into the, the green stuff, saying, well, the way it lowers costs is by these tax credits. And the way that it often works is to qualify for the big, generous tax credits paid for by you and these big new IRS tentacles that are going to be all over taxpayers, despite some of the assurances and, I would say, lies of the Democrats who passed this thing, and also tax increases. Let's not forget, it's not just an increase of spending, it's also increasing taxes. And they say it's only for, like, billionaires and corporations, but the nonpartisan... Joint Committee on Taxation, which is the official scorekeeper on taxes, nonpartisan in Congress, they said that the impact of those tax increases will be felt across all income groups. So tax hikes that affect you, IRS doubling that affects you. This is what they voted for to finance the Green New Deal style provisions that some people are trying to pretend will reduce inflation. And all you have to do, it's a deal of a lifetime, all you have to do is go and spend hundreds or thousands of dollars on a new electric vehicle, tens of thousands of dollars, or retrofit your house with more sustainable things such as 
you know, the charging station for the $60,000 electric vehicle. Or you can get the panels on top of your house to take in energy from the sun. And those solar panels, you'll get, for that expense, you'll get a tax credit. Which probably sounds great to some of the eligible families who are rich, up to $300,000, for example, for some of this stuff. Your suburban rich family with a low cost of living, relatively speaking, in, you know, in the middle of the country, making two hundred and fifty dollars to $300,000, you might have some of that money and savings lying around to go do these things and then have other taxpayers pay for a large chunk of it for you. That would be a very good deal for you. It would be a much less good deal for the people who are paying for this thing through their taxes who have no ability to actually front the money for all these expensive projects because they don't have the money to front almost anything right now because of inflation and other strains on their budgets. That's how many, many Americans are feeling. And to claim that somehow through this whole scheme, it turns out net-net to be an inflation reducer and helping them lower costs is a joke when you show them the math. And we're doing it all for the planet to reach some hypothetical goals that amount to virtually nothing in the face of the overall carbon footprint of the world. With some of our emerging competitors, very much like China, just full steam ahead on this stuff. Prioritizing their economy, their military, their dominance above anything else. So that's what this bill does. They tell you it's inflation reduction. It's nonsense. They tell you it's not something that's going to affect you negatively in terms of a tax increase or a visit from the IRS. That's not what the Joint Committee on Taxation says. So we're citing CBO and JCT, nonpartisan bookkeepers. They tell you not to worry. Doubling the size of the IRS, giving them not $25 million, which is what their longtime cheerleader commissioner said they needed, John Koskinen under Obama, twenty-five. A billion is what we need. And the Democrats said, not enough. Here's 80 billion. They're going to hire 87,000 new employees. Just blowing this agency up even bigger. We know that the vast majority of IRS audits target people making under $200,000. A majority, last I saw from the latest numbers, a majority of them, people making less than $100,000. But not this time, they say. Don't worry. Doubling the size of the agency won't affect you. And when they had a chance to vote on that, to keep the promise in the actual law that they're passing, every Senate Democrat voted no. We've made all these points before. I'm making them again here today because the president is going to sign this sucker into law shortly. And then it's no longer this hypothetical political debate where I'm weighing positives and negatives and fact-checking what the Democrats are saying and calling out some of their arguments. Then it becomes the law. Then it gets implemented. Then they start, then they start hiring these tens of thousands of new IRS workers that you just have to trust them will never pick up the phone for you or knock on your door ever. Do you believe that? It becomes no longer political, hypothetical. It becomes reality. And every single Democrat in Congress supported this. If you think that's a good thing, 
If this is the type of thing you like to see the government doing, then by all means, vote for these people again in November. If you are sick of all of this, and any number of the points that I just made resonate with you, there's a very clear opportunity, a once every two years opportunity, to send a message and to make a change, and that is in November as well. Your pick, your choice, your decision. Elections have consequences. The stakes are real. And the Guy Benson Show continues right after this break. Guy Benson will be right back. The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back here on the Guy Benson Show. It's the one-year anniversary of the disgraceful debacle in Afghanistan. It was a year ago today that those people clinging to the airplane plummeted to the earth to their deaths out of fear. And there are still tens of thousands of people that we promised safe passage out of that country, if it came to it, who helped us and put their lives and their families on the line for us, they are still stuck there. Despite all the promises and empty language. From a president who then looked back on what he had wrought and the horrible chaos that he unleashed through terrible planning and ignoring the generals and says, at the time, extraordinary success. Congratulations to us. That same president is about to show up in the East Room of the White House to sign this new so-called Inflation Reduction Act that we just talked about. Meanwhile, Bill Malugin, our colleague who was on the show yesterday, now reporting that there have been more than half a million known gotaways confirmed across the southern border since the beginning of this fiscal year. You add that to the more than 400,000 known gotaways from last fiscal year, and we are at nearly, we are sprinting towards a million known gotaways over the last two years. A million at the supposedly closed border. Three quarters of Americans say the country's on the wrong track. Three out of four of us believe that. How could you not right now? And yet we're told that a lot of those people, about half the country, wants to vote for the party in power, the ruling party, to stay in power even longer in November. Show up at the polls and make a different choice if you want to. We'll be right back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Really appreciate you listening every day, 3 to 6 Eastern. GuyBensonShow.com, the website, podcast, always free. And joining us now is Byron York, chief political correspondent at the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. Byron, as always, good to have you. Hi, Guy. Good to be here. All right, let's talk about this Mar-a-Lago saga. You have been following every twist and turn, more so certainly than I have. 
And you've written a piece describing the whole thing, and this definitely resonates with me as someone who has followed news cycles very closely for years throughout the Trump era. You called what's happening and playing out right now with the caveat that I will just reiterate that we still lack a lot of very important facts and context, which actually helps make your point that at least up to this point, what we are witnessing is a classic in the genre, and the genre being an anti-Trump, frenzy. I do agree with that. Lay out for us the components of the anti-Trump frenzy in which we find ourselves yet again. Well, we have to start out. um, Obviously, you start with Donald Trump, and then you start with some serious allegations, very, very grave-sounding allegations of wrongdoing involving Donald Trump, usually with the uh, warning that they affect national security, maybe with a little hint of treason uh, thrown in. And then you need some leaks. Uh, They can come from federal law enforcement or the intelligence community or lawyers who are involved uh, in the case. Uh, And then what you have is uh, based on the leaks, you have 24-7 speculation on cable TV, and we're talking about CNN and MSNBC. Uh, and then after a while, you've got a feeding frenzy. And the one thing you don't have, the punchline is, nobody really knows what's going on. There's speculation about classified documents, government secrets, and we don't know what's actually in them, but we're told it's really, really bad for Donald Trump. And look, Byron, sometimes this person, the former president, is responsible, in my mind at least, of grave wrongdoing. He has done things, I think, gravely wrong, especially around January 6th, in my estimation. I also thought the first impeachment, the two impeachments, the first one on Ukraine, did not rise to the level of an impeachable offense, in my view. I made that case at the time. But it was also bad. I said he should have been censured, of course, Any sort of middle ground is never acceptable to the resistance or to the defenders, and so that had no chance of actually happening. But there were also things where the grave wrongdoing sort of machine was working in overdrive for a very long time. The Russia matter comes to mind as like the most prominent example where that thing was a cloud. And and I feel like absent Russiagate, perhaps some of the other things would have never happened. Because it was such an overwhelming obsession of so many people that then consumed the president as well, and he was really ticked off about it. I think understandably, when the dust all settled there, there was no there there on Russia, even though we had done years of collective screaming about it without really knowing what ultimately was the truth, and then we finally got – the best, closest thing that we'll ever get to the truth, I feel like, with the Mueller investigation, and it just blew up the central attack line. And here we are again. I'm not saying I know how this particular episode ends. None of us do. But it definitely feels like a lot of deja vu. Yeah, and that's what consumed Trump, and it consumed our entire political conversation in 2016, 17, 18, and 19. And what I was describing really was the Trump-Russia investigation in which we were given these snippets of allegations. They became the subject of wild uh, speculation, and we didn't really know what was going on. And then when we did find out what was going on after a two-plus-year investigation with all of the powers of law enforcement by special counsel, we found – 
and it was all about collusion, and we found that he could not establish that collusion even existed. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, that really did scar Trump a lot. It made him believe that he was framed by law enforcement and the intelligence community, and it was all megaphoned in the media. And he, he's not without there's, – there's some basis. No, he's right. No, he's right about that. And I, it, didn't just, it didn't just scar him, Byron. I think it very much affected the thinking of tens of millions of Americans, which explains a lot of the mistrust that is currently right now at play, where people are saying, okay, here we go again. And a lot of the pro-clutchers are saying, how can these people disrespect the FBI and the DOJ this way? It's like, well, where have you been? I'm not here to attack those institutions top to bottom and say they're thoroughly rotten to the core and should be defunded and disbanded or whatever. I, I, I'm not on board for that. I'm also not on board for saying these are the very best among us and they shall not be questioned. They should be questioned because of what they just did and what they might, underscore might, be doing again. Now, on that front, Byron, I want to ask you about this. I'm sure you've seen some of the pieces now written by – Power attorney Alan Dershowitz, law professor, and then constitutional expert and conservative writer David French. And ironically, Dershowitz is the Democrat who very frequently uh, frequently defends Trump. French is the Republican who is a very prominent Trump critic. And yet the two of them come together and agree on a point that I've been making for the last week plus, which is this. On the classified documents side of all of this, which at least is the pretext for the raid down at Mar-a-Lago, it is not just meaningless whataboutism to recall the Hillary Clinton emails saga because of the way that she chronically, knowingly mishandled classified information on a server that was not allowed, that was not secured, highly vulnerable to foreign penetration from hostile actors, almost certainly uh, the case that that happened. And then she deleted a bunch of the evidence and lied about it after the, after, you know, the fact. It was extremely bad, totally negligent, I think criminal. And basically the FBI director at the time, James Comey, half came out and said, well, technically it was criminal, but we can't really find a good example that would hold up under these circumstances that would lead us to file charges. And so while tisk tisk, this was very bad, very bad misconduct here, uh, we're not going to charge. I, I just lay that all out because here we have another prominent individual in the government, this one actually with the power to declassify things unlike her, with a, at least on the surface, a big spat over classified documents, how they were handled, how they were stored in boxes, I guess, in, in some locked closet at Mar-a-Lago. And if everything that Hillary Clinton did did not result in a raid, let alone charges, that should matter. There should be a, a standard of justice that is at least on some recognizable level the same for different politicians. And when you've got Dershowitz and French making that same point, and I'm making the same point here, I think that says something. At least it should. It does. And it's in, in what they're saying, Dershowitz and French, is that you really can't have two standards, uh, one for Hillary Clinton and one for uh, Donald Trump. Remember, uh, we learned a lot about the Clinton investigation. It was called Mid-Year Exam, was the FBI name for it. Uh, and there was a there was an inspector general's report into mid-year exam, and among the things he found out was that 
early in the investigation, months before they interviewed Hillary Clinton or the top people around her, James Comey began drafting an exoneration document, an exoneration letter. Uh, so, I mean, this thing, the, the, the fix was in, as you might say. They just well, and they gave a bunch of sweetheart deals, right, to people around – with people yeah. around Hillary Clinton. They gave them sweetheart deals where they were going to evade any consequences. They apparently already knew, based on what you said, that Hillary wasn't going to face consequences. So they were sort of just like making this whole sort of like chain of immunity to make sure this never really did blow up into a criminal matter. And then you contrast that with the way – that they've handled virtually all things Trump. I mean, it, it doesn't take a red baseball cap wearing flag waving guy out there on the boat parade to say, you know, this seems a little shady and different. Yeah. And remember, there's another player in here in both of these, uh, which is Congress. Uh, we were talking about, you know, their relations with the Justice Department in the Hillary affair. Uh, the whole uh, secret server system was discovered by the Benghazi committee, uh, Republicans, in the House, and they subpoenaed the, the, the documents from her server. And you remember kind of the original sin of, of Hillary Clinton's handling of all this is that she, uh, on her own, deleted more than 30,000 documents from her server, and she said they were all just personal. Well, the, like the original sin wedding. was having the server, right? The original sin was setting up the server and having any government business on it at all. And, and then, of course, she lied about it. She set herself up as the guide for what evidence uh, any authority should be allowed to see or not see. So when they yeah. were under subpoena from the House, and her lawyer, David Kendall, some people might remember him as the Kendall of the Clinton's lawyers in their various scandals in the 1990s, her lawyer wrote to Trey Gowdy, chairman of the Benghazi Committee, he said, forget it, Trey, they're all gone. Um, and so think, uh, compare that to the way that uh, the January 6th committee has really been throwing the book uh, at some figures who kind of thumb their nose at the January 6th committee, uh, that can get you in trouble with the Justice Department. Hillary Clinton absolutely thumbed her nose at congressional committees in the Benghazi investigation, and nothing came of it. Well, it was cheered. It was cheered by the media. What a brilliant performance. When she finally testified, they're like, oh, just a tour de force, right, that they were – Absolutely on her side. Not surprising. It's what the journalist community generally does. They're Democrats, and when an election approaches, they really get into partisan mode, and we're seeing that uh, once again here. Byron, what's this business about the passports and Trump's passport? I've seen that word flying all over Twitter. They're returning passports to him. There's like three three passports that they took from Mar-a-Lago. Uh, what's the significance there? Well, you saw from the search warrant at Mar-a-Lago that the FBI was authorized to take just anything. They were authorized to search all of Mar-a-Lago except for the, the guest rooms, um, and they were, they were in, uh, authorized to take anything uh, that was generated between the years January 20th, 2017, the beginning of Trump's term, and January 20th, 2021, the end of Trump's term. And they apparently scooped up three passports, two of which were expired, one of which is current, um, and then Trump comes out and says, hey, man, they, they took my passports. 
And uh, we had some media reports, including one at CBS, saying that's absolutely not true. Trump is lying about this. And then the Justice Department admitted, well, sorry, we did take them and we'll give it back. Um, (laughs) Now, was the purpose in this? Was it a mistake? Were they going to use them? They were going to say that Trump was a flight risk. And, you know, it's not unusual for people under suspicion of serious crimes under investigation for the Justice Department to take their passport so they can't fly off to a non-extradition country. I mean, did they think Trump was going to do that? Uh, who knows? But the fact is, oh, we don't passports know. And, are kind of unique-looking things, and they took them. But, and that's part of the problem here. I talk about the unreliable narrator issue that surrounds almost all of this stuff, and this is the perfect example of it, where you have Trump coming out saying, they took – the passports are gone. Okay, so he comes out and makes the complaint, and you're like, is that true? Is he telling the truth about that? Is he mistaken? Is he lying for sensational reasons? I don't know. Then you have a mainstream news outlet. You said it was CBS News coming out, I'm sure, citing law enforcement sources, leaking to the media, saying he's a liar, that's not true, and then, oops, a little while later, actually it was true, here's the passport back, Mr. President. It's like, no wonder people don't trust this stuff. It's not an irrational skepticism based on like that little microcosm that I just explained and that, that you brought to my attention is just one tiny example of the larger phenomenon, which I think is part of the reason why people, many people, are not inclined to believe almost anything. And I'm almost right there with them. Now, Byron, on the issue of the warrant itself, we've now seen it. We have not seen the affidavits underlying the the application for the warrant. We know that Trump is asking for those to be released. We know the Justice Department is saying, no, they should not be released. It would imperil an active investigation. And I guess there's some sort of a hearing that might get set up on this. Uh, what do we know there? Well, I think the, the Justice Department is probably going to prevail in this. They, they don't have to release um, the affidavit unless they charge Trump with a crime, at which point they will have to um, uh, release it. But right now, the, the, the warrant issue, excuse me, the affidavit issue, underlines the fact that we don't know what we're talking about. Actually, Jack Goldsmith, former uh, lawyer in the George W. Bush Trump, uh, excuse me, George W. Bush Justice Department, now a professor at Harvard, wrote a very good article in Lawfare saying, you know, the the judgment on whether Merrick Garland made the right call to do this um, raid on Mar-a-Lago is going to be how serious are these documents? We know there are classified documents that shouldn't really be classified at all. We know there are others that are very serious, but we don't know anything about the documents that were seized at Mar-a-Lago. Are they a big, big deal, or are they not all that much and thus would not warrant a search warrant um, to go get them? And and were they still classified? Had he unclassified them or declassified them? Were they being stored in a way that was a grave danger to national security? So many questions still out there, Byron, and they're questions that people, I think, need answers to, and it's unclear whether we're going to get those answers any time soon. Byron York, chief political correspondent at the Washington Examiner, our colleague here at Fox News is a contributor. Byron, thank you so much. Thank you, Guy. Appreciate it. Now, before we take a break, I want to bring you quickly a Fox News alert. As this is now breaking, we knew this was coming. We talked about it in our open at the White House. President Biden 
is now giving a speech ahead of this announcement and then a signing ceremony for the so-called Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. It's a whole lot of spending, a lot of tax increases, a doubling of the IRS. They're now shifting to call it about climate and, and health care stuff. And he's flown in from one vacation to the White House to do this, and then he's going to leave for his next vacation right afterwards. We are monitoring that. The president speaking right now at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And very, very soon, that bill, which I think is awful, is going to become the law. Let's break. We'll come right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Fox News alert on the Guy Benson Show. Joe Biden, the president, speaking at the White House before he signs this so-called Inflation Reduction Act into law. Let's listen in briefly to the propaganda. With the Inflation Reduction Act over the next decade, we're cutting deficits to fight inflation by having the wealthy and big corporations finally begin to pay part of their fair share. Okay, so that's a big corporation. That's actually a perfect time to dip in live as he's speaking. We got the talking points that we addressed head on at the top of the show about deficit reduction, that 93 percent of which doesn't happen for years. And I think it's just dubious that a lot of it will materialize because money has a way of getting spent in D.C. The tax increases are just on billionaires and corporations. Fair share. They love that term. But the nonpartisan experts at JCT said actually every income group is going to be affected by those tax increases. And it's not going to reduce inflation. It has negligible negligible effect on inflation, even though that's what they named the law. So he said earlier in this little appearance that the American people won in special interest loss. Well, green special interest won big. So did the IRS. When the IRS doubles, a lot of Americans don't feel like winners, Mr. President. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Miranda Devine next. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in between 3 and 6 Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Lots of goodies there, including the free podcast, no charge to you, on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com, at GuyBensonShow, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be on Kennedy tonight, just after 7 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox Business. Looking forward to that. Hope you'll join us. And a Fox News alert as we begin our middle hour. The Dow closing up today, 239 points, ending at 34,152. And another Fox News alert. It is now official during the top of the hour break while we were away. President Biden finished his remarks that we dipped into briefly live last hour. He sat down at the desk, signed the $739 billion so-called Inflation Reduction Act. I just have to shake my head. Into law. It is now the law surrounded by Democrats cheering and clapping. Chuck Schumer, Joe Manchin. This could not have been done without him. We'll see how that plays out for him in the future in West Virginia. But joining me now to discuss this and a few other issues as well is Miranda Devine, New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor, and author of the book Laptop from Hell. Miranda, welcome back. Hey, good to talk to you, Guy. 
Well, a lot of us have been critical of this piece of legislation, I think for good reason, over the span of several weeks, once it was sort of sprung on the American people and really a lot of members of Congress in both parties by Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer, President Biden. I mean, they they went warp speed on this thing to get it to his desk and into law. It is now the law. Your big takeaways from the process and what this legislation now law means for the American people. Well, look, just a very um, superficial takeaway from Joe Biden's reaction after he signed the bill. He stood up and ostentatiously refused to shake the hand of Joe Manchin. Uh, so that shows a sort of a pettiness towards the one man who could have stood in the way and didn't. Um, and, and look, you know, now that is... Uh, I guess the biggest thing that people will notice is immediately you're going to see doubling of the IRS, uh, 86,000 new IRS agents uh, being sicked on you. And uh, I think the Congressional Budget Office has said today that um, that means that taxes are going to go up on and uh, on the people that Joe Biden promised would not pay more taxes. And that's um, people earning under 400000 meaning couples, each one earning under 200000 um, But it will be painted by the likes of Jennifer Rubin and, and all the cheerleaders for Joe Biden as a great win. This is a great week, great couple of weeks for Joe Biden. Hip, hip, hooray. Well, he's just returned from one vacation. He's going to another one any moment. He was down in South Carolina, and there were some eyebrows raised because his son Hunter was back aboard Air Force One uh, heading down to that trip. Not surprising, family vacation, family comes on the plane. But it was not, if I'm recalling correctly, not the big old 747 jumbo jet, but kind of the Air Force Two plane that Hunter Biden very famously accompanied his father on when he was vice president to China. And what can you tell us in terms of the, the latest developments, Miranda, when it comes to Hunter Biden, his foreign dealings with uh, foreign tied entities, uh, explicitly foreign government tied entities, including in China and elsewhere, it seems like, you know, you've been doggedly pursuing, uh, pursuing that. You wrote the book, Laptop from Hell. Um, there are a few people in the mainstream media who might start to finally admit there is something to all of this. Where does that stand right now? Yes. Well, I mean, look, it's it's been months since the New York Times actually did break its omerta on uh, the Hunter Biden laptop story and did admit that it was real and had sort of that it had verified emails on it and so on. Washington Post followed suit and so did other Democrat-leaning media. But since then, they've been silent and uh, they haven't really pursued any of the many uh, avenues that you could pursue from the laptop, um, and particularly when it comes to China and those millions of dollars that came through to the Biden family and their associates from China, um, thanks to Joe Biden's relationship with President Xi. And uh, when you see now that Joe Biden has gone soft on China in terms of policy, has unwound a lot of Trump-era get-tough-on-China policies. Um, it, it, you know, it, it, he just gives the impression, at the very least, that he is compromised. And so it's surprising that there isn't more reporting on that. Well, and the and other thing, as, yeah. Miranda, just, just to jump in, because it actually sparked another thought, 
I've had a few different people on the show, yourself included, talking about some of the Hunter Biden stuff that, you know, I guess it can finally be told is not a completely made up right wing thing or Russian disinformation. And some of the stuff that you were just raising, I think, is highly relevant to uh, any president of the United States or any sort of compromise involving his family and foreign governments, let alone the CCP. But one thing that I've been told, one of the pieces of speculation was, well, even though we're hearing reports that there is a ramping up of the federal investigation into Hunter Biden, because that's the thing. There's a federal investigation into the president's son. There's been chatter about potential indictments and that sort of thing potentially coming. Maybe he'll get charged. I've heard that the DOJ very well could have put a pause on any of that because it's just getting too close to an election and would potentially look too political to do something that close to an election, which is sometimes what they do with politically uh, sensitive cases. But obviously the Mar-a-Lago raid was not too close to an election or too sensitive for them to green light that thing in what, you know, the very beginning of August heading into a November election year. I know all of it's speculation because it's all in a black box, but I wonder what your thoughts are on that front. Yeah, hilariously, um, yet 90 days before the election, we get the Mar-a-Lago raid. David Weiss, the U.S. attorney in Delaware, um, has form on this. He previously uh, uh, basically paused the investigation into Hunter Biden, which is now in its fifth year, you have to remember. He did pause it for the 2020 election. And then remember, after the election, that was when Hunter Biden came out with that statement on his father's president-elect letterhead announcing that he was under tax investigation uh, with the U.S. attorney in Delaware. Since then, there has been a grand jury which has interviewed various of Hunter's business partners and former lovers, and uh, we expected that there would be something coming out of it, most likely a plea deal with some sort of um, you know, a suspended sentence, a big fine, something like that, not necessarily an indictment. Um, but uh, nothing has happened. Uh, there was some whisper that the grand jury had to reopen uh, about a month or so ago to hear rehear testimony from a couple of witnesses um, where there might have been some conflict, uh, and but nothing. And so you just get the feeling that this thing is being slow-walked again, and the excuse uh, may be this time again that we have to wait until after the election. Um, but, you know, when you think about it, with whatever they decide to do with Donald Trump, whether they indict him or uh, whatever they do, that would be a perfect moment to just dump out um, the, the sort of go softly, uh, or, or maybe they haven't gone softly, but whatever is the outcome of that, that five-year U.S. attorney investigation into Hunter Biden, uh, it might be a good time to bury it when everybody's all up in arms about whatever they do to Donald Trump. Yeah, and I do wonder, you said, you know, when they decide to do whatever they are or not going to do with Trump, I mean, I just don't know, when would that be? Like, when will we know that they've made a decision? When would they announce that? What would their timing look like? We have no idea, which is why it's people like us sitting here engaging in nationally uh, broadcast conjecture, because there's nothing else we can really do. And the whole thing is just sort of hanging there like a, a sort of Damocles. We don't even know if it's sharp if there's any legitimacy to it, if there's something very serious, or if it's just kind of a fishing expedition 
uh, wrapped up as something else. It's it's just a guessing game at this point. Miranda, I want to switch subjects and talk about the issue of crime and law and order. Uh, a pretty interesting development late last evening I saw, shared by Bill Malugin, our colleague at Fox News, that the Los Angeles County District Attorney George Gascon, who is facing a recall effort, looks like he skated on this one because the recall petitioners did not submit enough valid signatures to get the issue, to get the recall on the ballot. They got, uh, if I recall correctly, over 700,000 signatures, but a few hundred thousand of them were deemed insufficient or you know, not uh, worthy of counting based on the metrics that they have out there. And so they were disqualified, and therefore they just barely missed the signature number that they would need to get this thing on the ballot. Gascon put out a celebratory statement, kind of spiking the football. Um, I think obviously this is a failure by the people whose whole push was to get it on the ballot. There's no question about that. I don't know if there was a ton of appetite to keep Gascon in power. I'm not sure how many people would rush out to the polls to say, no, let's keep him on the job. Everything's going so well here. But unlike in San Francisco, where it was successful, at least in Los Angeles, the status quo has won, at least for now. Your reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, it's appalling. They disqualified uh, more than a quarter of the signatures. And, uh, and, and they didn't allow, the LA Registrar did not allow observers to view that signature disqualification process. So, um, you know... These are the same Democrats who were screaming blue murder when Republicans were uh, trying to get signatures verified during the 2020 election and were saying that they were being racist and uh, interfering with an election and spinning conspiracy theories. Here you have a completely non-transparent process. Can you call this suppression? uh, Is this not suppression? (laughs) Well, I mean, look. (laughs) 195, almost 200,000 signatures were found to be allegedly invalid. Um, so, so you know, this is... Uh, maybe this they is were. Over... Sorry? Maybe, 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 maybe they, they were, were, right? We don't know. That's a hell of a lot. That's a hell mm-hmm. of a lot. You know, that's that's 25, more than, more than a quarter. Yeah, big margin of error not, there. Not valid. So why is it that there were invalid signatures in this particular election of 25%? and yet not in elections that Democrats want to win. So, I, I mean, it just, it looks it looks fishy, but I think that the people who are, um, I mean, it's a, a blow to the people who tried to get the recall up, but um, uh, I, get, I think that they're going to keep trying. I mean, Gascon doesn't seem to, he's such an, an ideologue and a zealot. He doesn't seem to be at all chagrined by the... Totally arrogant, totally arrogant. And obviously it's at least a major setback for this push, I'd also call it a setback for the people in Los Angeles who now have to you know, live, I guess, with the consequences of their own decisions, but for longer. And it's not a great situation out there, to put it lightly. Miranda, last subject briefly. I know that you follow New York City politics and immigration politics closely. Those two have intersected with Eric Adams fighting Greg Abbott in Texas the way he has. 30 seconds, Miranda. It seems to me like Eric Adams is losing this fight very badly with the rhetoric back and forth. Yeah, he definitely is, but he's trying to save face by now 
having a besuited concierge greeting the illegal migrants when they get off the bus at the Port Authority, by um, revamping a very ritzy hotel in Midtown uh, to to put these Texas migrants up, and by saying we are a sanctuary, we are kind people, uh, we have compassion, and this is what they're going in, and they're just trying to paint anyone who disagrees with that as being cruel. Well, let's we see all- if that's sustainable. Let's see if they can sustain that. Let's see if the people of New York are excited about their taxpayer dollars being used that way. I think Eric Adams might not be thinking long-term here. Wouldn't surprise me, I guess. Miranda Devine, our guest on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. This was interesting. Yesterday at a press conference in Washington, D.C., The mayor, Muriel Bowser, last heard from complaining about the very small influx of illegal immigrants being bused to her city from the Texas border. Well, she was pushing back against claims and questions involving vaccine mandates in D.C. schools. We told you about this. We talked about it with Dr. Sapphire not long ago, where it is still going to be the case that for the upcoming school year, kids have to be vaccinated to show up at D.C. schools. All ages. This right on the heels of CDC changing their guidance and kind of admitting, and by the way, we know this is especially true for younger kids, that there's not really very much of a difference at all on transmission rates among the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. But at least for now, it seems like D.C. is sticking to this crazy anti-child, anti-education policy. That, by the way, will likely disproportionately impact students of color. Black students are much less likely than their white counterparts in D.C. to be vaccinated. So you've got a bunch of kids who are already suffering over the last couple of years, who have been harmed so much, who have been set back so significantly. And you're going to have vax mandates potentially locking a huge percentage of them out of schools in Washington, D.C. because of this requirement, which is simply not based on science. And we know that the overwhelming majority of especially the youngest kids in this country haven't gotten vaccinated, which I think is actually a a sound decision by parents and doctors based on the data. So Douglas Blair from the Daily Signal confronted Bowser about this, asked the question about disproportionate impact on black students. Listen to the way she answered this. Cut 11. We have reporting that around 40 percent of black students in the district are unvaccinated and therefore under the district's current policy regarding schools will be unable to attend school come uh, the school semester starting. So why is the district con- continuing with this policy when it seems to disproportionately impact black students? Um, I don't think that that number is correct. Um, we have a substantially few fewer number of kids that we have to engage with vaccination. Um, and I explained why it's important. Um, it's important for the public health of our students and that we can maintain safe environments so she's doubling down on the policy so that's going to remain in place at least for now and we recall some of her adventures on covid mitigation requirements and mask mandates and her own hypocrisies we've talked about those in the past but she's not just clinging to this bad idea she's defending it and in the process she's questioning the validity of the statistics that undergirded The question about black students and vaccination rates. The Daily Signal reports, while Bowser claimed the number provided by the Daily Signal is incorrect, the statistic came from, drumroll please, the District of Columbia's own vaccination data website. 
It's her own administration, her own city's data that they're using. Data showing that around 60% of black kids aged 12 to 17 have received a complete COVID vaccine regimen, meaning 40% are unvaccinated or have not received a second shot if necessary. And therefore, that's the number that's being raised and cited in the question. She dismisses the data from her own administration because she doesn't want to grapple with what she's actually doing and what this unbelievably imbecilic policy could mean for lots of kids, especially kids of color, in her jurisdiction. What a lousy answer. And it's especially embarrassing given the fact that she's out there disputing the number. It's her own number. While we're on the subject of education and public schools, I have a lot more to say in the next segment featuring Woke Tales. Stay with us. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. The Guy Benson Show continues here halfway through the program today. Very grateful for your listenership, whether it's live between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern or on the podcast, which is free on demand every day after the show, GuyBensonShow.com. It is time, once again, for Woke Tales. Woke Tales. Headline from FoxNews.com, Minneapolis Teachers Union Agreement stipulates white teachers be laid off first, regardless of seniority. Subheadline, the agreement reached last spring exempts teachers from, quote, underrepresented populations from seniority-based layoffs. Wow. Here's the story. An agreement between the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers, the union, And the school district in Minneapolis states that white teachers will be laid off before teachers of color, regardless of their seniority. The agreement, which was reached to end a two-week teacher strike last spring, says that starting this year, quote, if accessing a teacher who is a member of a population underrepresented among licensed teachers in the site, the district shall access the next least senior teacher who is not a member of an underrepresented population, which is a lot of words stipulating that explicitly identity considerations will now be dominant, preeminent in some of these decisions on both layoffs and rehiring if layoffs are reversed. The story explains that accessing teachers is the process by which staff are reduced at a particular school due to a drop in enrollment, funding, or other reasons. And because there has been a drop in funding and enrollment, there's an expectation that this would not necessarily just be a hypothetical woke teacher's contract, that this could actually affect people. And it just strikes me as the definition of racism, where you would set in writing a policy under which people based on their identity would be put further or lower on the line for layoffs or for rehiring based solely on that identity. Not only is it just flagrantly, blatantly racist in my mind, I don't know how else you would describe that, I also think it is almost certainly illegal. And the first person who believes that he or she is the victim of this racial racist policy I think will likely race out and go get a lawyer 
and could very well have a payday ahead of him or her. Because I think that this really is blatantly not just wrong, but illegal under anti-discrimination laws. And I've seen a number of attorneys being like, yeah, good luck with this to the school district. Minneapolis is, I think, really almost underrated on the dysfunctional woke scale. We talk so much about San Francisco and Los Angeles, Portland, of course, Seattle, some other places. Minneapolis has been ground zero for a lot of absolute lunacy, especially over the last couple of years, across multiple different categories, including, remember, abolishing and reimagining the police. The city council voted to do that and then has been backtracking and dealing with that debacle ever since. Here we have the teachers union writing racial discrimination directly into a contract between the city and the teachers union. Back to the foxnews.com story. The agreement further goes on to say that when reinstating teachers, so this is the other end of the layoffs, quote, the district shall prioritize the recall of a teacher who is a member of a population underrepresented among licensed teachers in the district. According to the Minneapolis Star Tribune, 50 teachers of color will be losing their positions this fall due to cuts tied to enrollment losses. So, as I said, not exactly hypothetical. I saw another account about this from the U.K. Daily Mail with this line from the story. The new contract also calls for the development of anti-bias and anti-racist staff advisory councils. She'll have little woke panels within the district focused on exactly these kinds of issues, with anti-racism being actually this very toxic and virulent ideology very much in sort of the realm of critical race theory and indoctrination. And this reminds me again of this concept that we hear sometimes from activists on the left and Democrats who either support this or want to sort of pretend that they're looking the other way and it's crazy to notice any of it. And you're probably a racist if you notice or object. They always say, and we disprove them over and over again, they're just reams of evidence and examples all across the country, from Virginia to Detroit to the left coast, We've been through a bunch of them, especially during woke tale segments. Say, this isn't really happening. It's a figment of your imagination. This is the right-wing fever swamp run amok yet again. And they kind of want to gaslight you and make it seem, at least to parents, like you're a little off your rocker if you think that these people really have an interest in racialized indoctrination of your children. And yet this is what they do. They negotiate their own union contracts with the city in explicitly racialized terms where they codify race-based discrimination as an overriding and crucial factor in hiring and firing decisions. And they set up these little panels of racial wokery within the district, in this case the Minneapolis School District staff advisory councils on anti-racism. And yet they still expect you to believe that it's all just a, a big red herring. It's a myth. The CRT thing isn't real. It's not taught anywhere. It's just some abstruse concept only taught in a few law schools. And anyone who says otherwise is lying. I think the way that they conduct themselves and their own business and the things that they prioritize and what they do actually quite openly within the realm of adults, at the very least, should make parents extra vigilant 
about what would be seeping potentially into curricula and into classrooms. Because they're putting this stuff in writing. And that's just among the adults. What are they trying to fill your kids' heads with? It's just like there's one brand new little commercial for school choice that comes out on a regular basis, courtesy of teachers' unions. They are very explicitly telling us who they are and what they prioritize. And on that front, here's another story that I want to bring to your attention. This was published a few days ago at Time Magazine, and it tells the story of an episode I had never heard of, totally outrageous, from 2015. So this was years before the pandemic. This is now seven years ago. And the story begins with this anecdote, again, something I had never learned until just recently. And then it broadens out into the point of the story. But let me just read to you the opening paragraph. As a teacher in Oakland, California, so I'll just pause there. This is one of the most left-wing jurisdictions in America. Totally woke, Kamala Harris country, San Francisco Bay Area. Okay. As a teacher in Oakland, California, Kareem Weaver helped struggling fourth and fifth grade kids learn how to read by using a very structured, phonics-based reading curriculum called Open Court. It worked for the students but not so much for the teachers. Quote, for seven years in a row, Oakland was the fastest gaining urban district in California for reading, recalls Weaver, and we hated it. The teachers said they felt like curriculum robots and pushed back. Quote, this seems dehumanizing. This is colonizing. This is the man telling us what to do, says Weaver, describing their response to the approach. So we fought tooth and nail as a teacher group to throw it out. It was replaced in 2015 by a curriculum that emphasized rich literary experiences. Quote, those who wanted to fight for social justice, they figured out that this new progressive way of teaching reading was the way, he says. So let's just pause right there. This is a former teacher in Oakland admitting what happened. There was a phonics-based, old-school reading education system, very structured. The name of it was Open Court. And it was so successful, it worked so well for those students in Oakland, that for seven consecutive years, leading up to 2015, or I guess 2014 into 2015, the city of Oakland became the fastest-gaining district, urban district, in the whole state, the biggest state in the country, for reading and literacy. And literacy is a real problem in a lot of school districts around the country. In fact, later in the story, we learned that in 2019, just before the pandemic, only 35% of fourth graders met the standards for reading proficiency set by the National Assessment of Education Progress. A lower number than even 2017, so we were going backwards. The story said that only 21% of low-income students, 18% of black students, and 23% of Hispanic students can be considered on track for reading by the fourth grade. These numbers have been low for decades, but the pandemic has given the dismal results extra urgency. This is from the Time Magazine story. So you have a 35% proficiency rate 
as of 2019 across the board, which is terrible. That's a failing grade. And it's even worse if you're low income, black or Hispanic. Those are the stats. So you would think that the equity-minded people out there who talk constantly about equity and justice, you would think they would be extra concerned with this development, with this trajectory, with these outcomes, and they would be particularly eager to help rectify the problem, which is a big equity problem or equality problem. Right? You can't really have equal opportunity if you can't read properly. So they want to fix that, you would imagine, you would hope, as efficiently and quickly as possible. And yet in Oakland, you had a system that was working incredibly well with this old-school phonics-based system teaching kids how to read. The numbers got put on a rocket ship. The fastest-gaining literacy in the whole state of California, an urban district, seven years in a row. And what did the teachers do in Oakland? The teachers revolted against the succeeding policy. Why? Because it wasn't personally fulfilling for them. And they dressed the whole thing up in all their woke terminology. It's dehumanizing. It's colonizing. (laughs) It's the man telling us what to do. So they agitated and agitated and got the succeeding, the empirically working system thrown out in favor of something that gave teachers more flexibility to sort of feel personal fulfillment and teach a rich literary experience, which was particularly appealing, according to this teacher, to those who were at least nominally obsessed with social justice. I think if you actually are obsessed with the real meaning of social justice, you are clinging desperately to something that works and produces results. The opposite happened. And the story goes on to talk about how there's this move towards evidence-based requirements when it comes to curricula on things like reading. Some states are adopting them. Mississippi was one of the first and had a huge renaissance that they called the Mississippi Miracle because this is a tried-and-true method. And then other states, notice I see Virginia just recently signed on. That would be a move in the right direction. And I hope, for the sake of the children, that becomes the requirement Because this should be about teaching children basic skills successfully, not making adults, teachers, feel good about themselves and their ability to preach social justice or indoctrinate. That might be what gets them out of bed in the morning. That is not what should motivate a teacher. Which actually reminds me of the previous story we were just discussing with the racial considerations within this Minneapolis school district and the teacher's contract with the city, it seems to me that neither race nor seniority are the best metrics for laying off teachers or hiring or rehiring teachers. Right? The color of someone's skin or the number of years they've been on the job does not really necessarily in any way, shape, or form connect to their job performance their ability to inspire and get through to kids, to teach, to do a good job, which I know is maybe more subjective, but it it just doesn't feel like the system that is in place in so many places is one that is designed to help children. It is to perpetuate power structures 
set up by adults for their own self-interest over years. And Bethany Mandel, who's a conservative writer, was highlighting this Time Magazine story on social media about the reading curriculum in Oakland, how the teachers successfully fought to get a wildly successful program terminated because they didn't like it personally. And she made the observation, I think a good one, a trenchant one, that this was kind of a precursor to the mentality that unfortunately dominated and characterized so much of the COVID and pandemic era decision-making processes in so many places where the needs of children, the educational needs of children were subordinated to the preferences and agendas of adults. And if that's something that's acceptable to you and you think that's how education should go, kids second, then I think you should absolutely continue to support the infrastructure of that system. But if you think that's backwards, like I do, then it's time to upend and disrupt that system. And I think school choice is certainly a good place to start, literally for the sake of kids and their ability to learn. And that's Woke Tales. More of The Guy Benson Show straight ahead. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you on board. This isn't quite Woke Tales, but on the heels of Woke Tales, I ask, what is going on at The Atlantic? It's a very prominent, prestigious publication. Definitely left-leaning. They've got a couple really hot take pieces in the last few days that they've published, including one making fun of the right over our collective concerns about violent pro-abortion attacks against pro-life organizations. We've been talking about that. We've mentioned it here. Jane's Revenge, the FBI was looking into it. And the article was talking about how it's the new bogeyman on the right and that conservative politicians and activists are eating it up and comparing the whole thing to Antifa, which I would note was absolutely a real phenomenon as well, with a bunch of thugs committing violence. The thesis of the piece was, look at these weird right-wingers noticing a domestic terrorism crime spree. And being upset about it. Aren't they strange? And there was another Atlantic op-ed claiming the Catholic rosary has now become an extremist symbol. And a lot of critics online pointing out that the piece just seemed totally religiously illiterate, which is a common theme in newsrooms. There were some stealth edits made to the graphic on the story, the headline on the story. They kind of need to get their act together over at the Atlantic if they don't want to be considered something like a higher-end salon. And it's always helpful to have, you know, one or two actual conservatives and religious people in a newsroom. I know it's a very weird thought to some of them in these very elite, highly secular places, but they might embarrass themselves a little bit less from time to time. It's just a pro tip. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up next. Eli Lake on Salman Rushdie, Iran, Israel and Palestine, and much more coming up. Five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson.
our final hour is here on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks so much for tuning in between 5 and 6 p.m. Eastern. That's the happy hour. The whole show is 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern weekdays. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every day. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. And this hour is sponsored by The Finnish Long Drink and our friends over there, thelongdrink.com, for all of the information you need, 21 plus only, and always drink responsibly. With us now is Eli Lake, host of the Re-Education Podcast with Eli Lake and contributing editor at Commentary Magazine. Eli, great to have you back here. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Guy. I'd like to start on the Salman Rushdie attack, and it's something that has gotten some attention, I would say, in the national media. It is not a lead story, but a lot of people have been weighing in on it. I've heard from some listeners who just have absolutely no idea who he is or why this is significant. They're like, what is a fatwa? Why does this date back many years? Can you just maybe give us a quick primer on Salman Rushdie and why this attack is significant and disturbing? Absolutely. Um, Salman Rushdie is a Muslim and uh, Indian uh, writer from the United Kingdom whose 1980, I think it's 88 or 89 book, Satanic Verses, sort of imagines a fictionalized account of the Prophet Muhammad. And that book was deemed blasphemous, not only by the um, supreme leader at the time of Iran, Ayatollah Khomeini, but many Muslims around the world. And it really did, it was a sort of international sensation. Um, There were efforts to try to ban his book in several Muslim countries. There was uh, at one point an effort to try to uh, charge him in under British law, under blasphemy. It became a huge point. And sort of in that context, what we saw was uh, in his final weeks uh, alive, the uh, Supreme Leader Khomeini, who would die in a, a few months later, issued a fatwa or religious edict that um, said that any Muslim should kill Mr. Rushdie and uh, also offered a cash reward for anyone who did. And this not only affected Salman Rushdie, who had to go into hiding, but um, one of his translators uh, into Japanese was was murdered by someone who was inspired by this. There were other people who had tried to translate his works in Turkey and Egypt who had been attacked and grievously wounded, much in the same way that Salman Rushdie was, um, I guess, on Friday in upstate New York. So all of this um, has been a, kind of a, a, a matter of at least pseudo-state policy for the Iranian regime. Um, there was an effort to, to kind of uh, sort of a fake – I should say the fatwa was never lifted in 1999 under – uh, President Khatami, the uh, reformer who didn't have much power, but he did say that Iran would no longer seek to um, help implement the order, the edict, or hinder those who tried to do it. But then later, the supreme leader of Iran, Ayatollah Khamenei, would later kind one. of say that the fatwa was still in effect. So they never revoked it. Um, and this has been the kind of thing that fanatics, Muslim fundamentalists, certainly have paid attention to, and he's been a marked man. But over time, uh, it didn't seem like the threat was as profound as it was in uh, the early 1990s. And I think that that Rushdie had sort of shed much of the security that he had been traveling with at the time, sort of lead his life. And uh, and then we saw this awful attack uh, on Friday. Yeah. And my understanding is the new Supreme Leader had tweeted something about this sort of reminding people that it was an active fatwa a couple of years ago. And it just still blows my mind that you can have someone like that on Twitter with an active Twitter account, whereas a former president of the United States is banned from Twitter. There are just certain 
standards that make absolutely no sense to me. That's a sideshow in this larger point about Mr. Rushdie, the attack against him. It's, of course, very upsetting on its face, a man stabbed at a public event when he was preparing to give some remarks. There were some initial headlines that authorities were still looking into the motive. And it seems exceptionally clear what the motive was, especially given what we are learning about the suspect here, who was, from what I gather, at least a significant committed sympathizer with the Iranian regime. And there are some reports that he might have been in contact with Iran's Revolutionary Guard. I mean, those seem highly relevant to me. And if he was in contact with the Revolutionary Guard about this, that would be uh, perhaps a detail that could raise the stakes in all of this, couldn't it? Um, 100%. I would say that it's legitimate to speak of this as we don't yet know if the Iranian state had an active role in this plot, or was it simply um, the fatwa from more than 30 years ago that inspired uh, this deranged lunatic? And there is an important distinction there, I suppose. But it also sort of, in another sense, it doesn't really matter. Because Iranian state media uh, have celebrated this attack. Yeah, even glorified. The statement from the from the spokesperson for the spokesman for the Iranian foreign ministry said that Russia had brought this on himself. And it, what it really should should sort of bring home here is that the current regime in Iran is a threat to free expression, is a threat to literature everywhere, um, and. There's no negotiating with, um, you know, fanatic sociopaths like that. And that yep. we really have to, to treat Iran as a nation state, at least, the regime that runs Iran, the way that we would treat, um, you know, like a mass shooter. This is not a regime, even though it is, it is trying to blackmail the world with its nuclear weapons program and its support for terrorism and everything else. But, you know, we cannot negotiate with these people, and we have to adopt a a strategy at the very least of solidarity with the Iranian people to help them overthrow their their oppressors. Now, that does not mean that we should invade Iran. That would be a very foolish thing. We do not have the wherewithal to uh, do that at the moment, especially now that we are involved in supporting Ukraine and we have to prepare for China and Taiwan. So I'm not arguing for a military intervention, but I do think that diplomatically it is time to finally recognize exactly what the Iranian regime is and to treat that regime like the geopolitical equivalent of cancer or COVID. We have to quarantine Iran. It cannot – we have to – I mean there should be – in at least the Western democracies, the value-free expression, there should be a movement to – basically have no diplomatic ties at this well, point. Well, I want to of... return to that, yeah. Eli, and I want to I return to the broader point about Iran and our policy vis-a-vis Iran in a moment, because there's a few other incidents that I think feed into what you're talking about. But just to land the plane and finish the conversation on Rushdie, it's been very interesting to watch certain clips and writings resurface of people back when this was a red-hot issue, and obviously it was reignited now that he's been attacked, On American soil, again, this was not like he was somewhere in the Middle East. This was in upstate New York. He was stabbed nearly to death, and it looks like, fortunately, he is recovering but is in bad shape overall. There were a lot of people in the West highly critical of Salman Rushdie 
at the time, including former President Jimmy Carter, wrote a piece that, looking back, looked pretty disgraceful, not really living up to the standards of free expression and free speech. It seems like a lot of people love those concepts, but there are like carve-outs and asterisks, and those were attached in significant measure to Salman Rushdie's work, which I think was absolutely wrong then, and now, given what's happened to him, I think it really looks even worse. Well, I mean, it's it, Solomon Rushdie himself had a wonderful expression. He called them the butt brigades because they would say, I support free speech and free expression, but, and that's what this is, because if you support free speech and free expression, then that is a principle that you have to support no matter what. So that means you have to support speech that is really offensive to you. It means that you have to support speech that might rile up fanatics of a particular religion, because the other point here that I think we're missing is that the butt brigade, if you will, the Jimmy Carters, the people who want to try to tell you that there's certain speech that really shouldn't be, you know, that you, there's certain free speech that is that should be stifled because it's too harmful or it could cause too much damage or whatever. It's the idea here that if once you make one exception, you sort of have like, you know, you don't really have free speech anymore, do you? Right? I mean, it's like you, you have to sort right. of stand up. And right. The, the exceptions, really the exceptions yeah. would become the rule. Well, that and that's and we're seeing it in other contexts where it's not the same as the Iranian uh, regime, you know, putting out a, a, literally a hit on an author. But we're certainly seeing, like, you know, you see these, you know, very extreme trans uh, activists that want to um, prevent Amazon from selling Abigail Schreier's book. Now, I'm right. not saying that they're planning violence against Abigail Schreier, but it's the same concept. It's like no one should be able to. Per, read this book because the ideas are so dangerous and they're kind of a form of, of violence. And it, it's a similar kind of threat to free speech. And I would just say one more thing. Don't make the mistake that these fanatics in Iran or the fanatics in Pakistan that originally, you know, were, were, were having demonstrations against the book speak for all Muslims. They don't. And Salman Rushdie, who himself is Muslim, makes this point eloquently over and over again in the beginning of this controversy just to say that there's plenty of Muslims who can read this book and not feel that their entire faith has been offended because they're grown up and intelligent and they have the ability to compartmentalize things and understand the difference between literature and, you know, well, and even if your faith is offended, and even if you see something that's blasphemous, it's not a reason to go and stab someone or try to kill them. And I think your point about book banning in a more you know secular and maybe less deadly context is an important one to make. I think generally if you're on the side of book banning, you are not on the side of a free society. I think that's fair to say. And I'm not talking about disputes and debates about you know, the propriety of certain books to be taught in schools to children as part of a curriculum. I'm talking about the availability of books and literature out there. If you were attempting to disallow adults from reading something that offends you, that – puts you on, to borrow the phrase that is, I think, far overused, the wrong side of history. Now, on that front, Eli, let's come back to Iran. It's not just this Iran-inspired attack against Salman Rushdie in New York. There was another very serious threat against an Iranian national who's a big advocate against the regime in favor of women's rights. We've had her on the show. Uh, she had a death plot against her recently. We found out about, via indictments from the Justice Department, a murder-for-hire scheme connected to the Iranian regime against John Bolton when he was a high-ranking government official. We've seen similar 
accusations about what they've attempted to do with Mike Pompeo, the former Secretary of State under the Trump administration. I mean, sort of one thing after another of the Iranians attempting to spill blood on U.S. soil, and yet the current administration continues to negotiate with them on a nuclear deal, and I saw something today, a headline, that slowly but surely that process is continuing to just sort of chug forward. It seems pretty remarkable that you would have an administration indict someone from the regime for trying to kill one of their predecessors in office here at home while also trying to kind of treat them like a legitimate diplomatic partner potentially in an Iran nuclear deal. What's your thought on that? I think the 2015 nuclear deal, sometimes known as the JCPOA, is a religion. It is a cult for, you know, the democratic foreign policy establishment. It's just something that they believe that they want to do no matter what. Listen, they continue to pursue this deal even after an Iranian missile landed dangerously close to the U.S. consulate in Erbil, northern Iraq. They continue to pursue this deal, even though it meant after Russia's invasion of Ukraine that the United States would need to basically negotiate through a Russian diplomat. <laughs> right, and through the Russians. We're trying to alienate all the Russians and try to you know, isolate Russia's regime. We would still pursue this deal, which would make Russia the essential sort of deal broker of uh, reviving this nuclear agreement. And then finally... I didn't think the deal was that great, you know, in 2015. But now that we're in 2022, I mean, this the actual deal itself is going to the the the, the limits on their uranium enrichment expire in a matter of in a few years. So there's really very little benefit at this point, and yet they continue to do it. And I think they continue to do it. They're sort of on an autopilot, it's like a, a zombie diplomacy, because it's they're they're invested in it like almost emotionally. They, right, they like feel a talisman. That this is the big legacy of Barack Obama, but the, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's an embarrassment. And in a few years, all of the people in the think tanks and you know the Democrats in Congress, Democrats in the administration, who keep sort of you know repeating these vacuous talking points, are going to be embarrassed because it, what they need to do is to devise a policy that sort of meets the moment and meets exact and, and, and understands exactly what this regime is. And in my view, that has to be isolate and solidarity. It has to be solidarity with the Iranian people and make sure to isolate it. No former Iranian diplomat, no former Iranian whatever should have a job at a U.S. university or college or any European university or college. And there are such people right now at places like Princeton and Oberlin. It's, it's like a series of these kinds of things. That, you know, the Iranians are just a dirtbag regime. We should not give them any respect whatsoever. And we should be working with the Iranian people to overthrow them. Eli, let's pause there for a second. I want to hop to another conflict in the region. We'll get to that next with Eli Lake on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Back here on The Guy Benson Show with Eli Lake talking about the Middle East and some developments. There's been some sort of a military engagement with Israel and the Palestinians, I believe, in Gaza in recent days, there have been some deaths. I'm not sure what the root of this latest episode is. I'm sure you're much more up on it than I am. I did see an NBC News story a couple days ago about a Palestinian mother who had undergone multiple IVF treatments to finally have her one and only child, a son, 
who was killed at the age of 18 during this conflict. It took like 30 paragraphs into the story. The implication was there was an Israeli rocket that killed him. 30 paragraphs down, you find out that almost certainly it was a terrorist rocket that misfired and killed him, which seems like a very significant detail here. Can you just give us quickly the thumbnail sketch of what is at issue right now and how Americans should be thinking about it? Well, I mean, it's sort of more of the same at this point. I mean, I think that the original conflict was, you know, maybe you could sort of argue was between two competing terror groups in Gaza in that, um, you know, Hamas is obviously the power there. But I think that the group that did this Islamic Jihad may have been trying to sort of establish themselves. The Israelis responded with a pretty impressive kind of operation that obviously required enormous intelligence where they uh, killed a lot of the leadership of that. And then there was this response. Um, but uh, we're seeing again that, you know, like I, it's, the, the interesting thing here is that I think that activists in Europe and America care far more about the conflict than uh, the, the leadership of most of the Arab world, who at this point has kind of moved on. Yeah, and it's reminiscent of your point about the obsession over the Iran deal, where people are treating it as if the facts on the ground are exactly the same as they were years ago and all the talking points are unchanged. Meanwhile, the earth beneath all of us has shifted dramatically on these fronts, both of them, and some people refuse to acknowledge that and are stuck in this rut of old thinking and obsolete points, and yet they sort of continue and they insist on persisting. We've got to leave it there for now. Eli Lake, host of the Re-Education Podcast with Eli Lake, contributing editor at Commentary Magazine. Eli, appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And we'll be right back after this on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Earlier in the program today in our first hour, Byron York was here, chief political correspondent for The Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. A wide-ranging conversation with Byron, a taste of which you can listen to right now. There should be a, a standard of justice that is, at least on some recognizable level, the same for different politicians. And when you've got Dershowitz and French making that same point and I'm making the same point here, I think that says something. At least it should. It does. And it's in, in what they're saying, Dershowitz and French, is that you really can't have two standards, uh, one for Hillary Clinton and one for uh, Donald Trump. Remember, uh, we learned a lot about the Clinton investigation. It was called Mid-Year Exam was the FBI name for it. Uh, and there was, a, there was an inspector general's report into mid-year exam, and among the things he found out was that early in the investigation, months before they interviewed Hillary Clinton or the top people around her, James Comey began drafting an exoneration document, an exoneration mm-hmm. letter. Uh, so, I mean, this thing, the, the, the fix was in, as you might say. They well, and they gave a bunch of sweetheart deals, right, to people around her. With people yeah. around Hillary Clinton, they gave them sweetheart deals where they were going to evade any consequences. They apparently already knew, based on what you said, that Hillary wasn't going to face consequences. So they were sort of just like making this whole sort of like chain of immunity to make sure this never really did blow up into a criminal matter. And then you contrast that with the way that they've handled virtually all things Trump. I mean, it, it doesn't take a red baseball cap wearing flag waving guy out there on the boat parade to say, you know, this seems a little shady and different. 
Yeah, and remember there's another player in here in both of these, uh, which is Congress. Uh, we were talking about you know their relations with the Justice Department. In the Hillary affair, uh, the whole uh, secret server system was discovered by the Benghazi Committee, uh, Republicans in the House, and they subpoenaed the, the, the documents from her server. And you remember kind of the original sin of, of Hillary Clinton's handling of all this is that she, uh, on her own, deleted more than 30,000 documents from her server, and she said they were all just personal. Well, the, like the original sin waiting. was having the server, right? The original sin was setting up the server and having any government business on it at all. And, and then, of course, she lied about up. it. She set herself up as the guide for what evidence uh, any authority should be allowed to see or not see. So when they yeah. were under subpoena from the House, and her lawyer, David Kendall, some people might remember him as the Kendall of the Clinton's lawyers and their various scandals in the 1990s, her lawyer wrote to Trey Gowdy, chairman of the Benghazi Committee, he said, forget it, Trey, they're all gone. Um, and so think, uh, compare that to the way that uh, the January 6th committee has really been throwing the book uh, at some figures who kind of thumb their nose at the January 6th committee, uh, that can get you in trouble with the Justice Department. Hillary Clinton absolutely thumbed her nose at congressional committees in the Benghazi investigation, and nothing came of it. Well, it was cheered. It was cheered by the media. What a brilliant performance. When she finally testified, they're like, oh, just a tour de force, right, that they were – Absolutely on her side. Not surprising. It's what the journalist community generally does. They're Democrats, and when an election approaches, they really get into partisan mode, and we're seeing that uh, once again here. Byron, what's this business about the passports and Trump's passport? I've seen that word flying all over Twitter. They're returning passports to him. There's like three three passports that they took from Mar-a-Lago. What's the significance there? Well, you saw from the search warrant at Mar-a-Lago that the FBI was authorized to take just anything. They were authorized to search all of Mar- Mar-a-Lago except for the, the guest rooms, um, and they were they were in, uh, authorized to take anything uh, that was generated between the years January 20th, 2017, the beginning of Trump's term, and January 20th, 2021, the end of Trump's term. And they apparently scooped up three passports, two of which were expired, one of which is current. Um, and then Trump comes out and says, hey, man, they, they took my passports. And uh, we had some media reports, including one at CBS, saying that's absolutely not true. Trump is lying about this. And then the Justice Department admitted, well, sorry, we did take them, and we'll give it back. Um, <laughs> okay. Now, there, what was the purpose in this? Was it a mistake? Were they going to use them? They were going to say that Trump was a flight risk? And, you know, it's not unusual for people – under suspicion of serious crimes under investigation for the Justice Department to take their passport so they can't fly off to a non-extradition country. I mean, did they think Trump was going to do that? Uh, who knows? But the fact is, well, we don't know. It, kind of unique-looking things, and they took them. But, and that's part of the problem here. I talk about the unreliable narrator issue that surrounds almost all of this stuff, and this is the perfect example of it, where you have Trump coming out saying they took – the passports are gone. Okay, so he comes out and makes the complaint, and you're like, is that true? Is he telling the truth about that? Is he mistaken? Is he lying for sensational reasons? I don't know. Then you have a mainstream news outlet. You said it was CBS News coming out, I'm sure, citing law enforcement sources 
leaking to the media saying he's a liar, that's not true, and then, oops, a little while later, actually it was true, here's the passport back, Mr. President. It's like no wonder people don't trust this stuff. It's not an irrational skepticism based on like that little microcosm that I just explained and that, that you brought to my attention is just one tiny example of the larger phenomenon, which I think is part of the reason why people, many people, are not inclined to believe almost anything. And I'm almost right there with them. Now, Byron, on the issue of the warrant itself, we've now seen it. We have not seen the affidavits underlying the the application for the warrant. We know that Trump is asking for those to be released. We know the Justice Department is saying, no, they should not be released. It would imperil an active investigation. And I guess there's some sort of a hearing that might get set up on this. Uh, what do we know there? Well, I think the, the Justice Department is probably going to prevail in this. They, they don't have to release um, the affidavit unless they charge Trump with a crime, at which point they will have to um, uh, release it. But right now, the, the, the warrant issue, excuse me, the affidavit issue, underlines the fact that we don't know what we're talking about. Actually, Jack Goldsmith, former uh, lawyer in the George W. Bush Trump, uh, excuse me, George W. Bush Justice Department, now a professor at Harvard, wrote a very good article. My full discussion with Byron York of the Washington Examiner and our Fox News colleague is available on our podcast, totally free of charge, every day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, we're talking emojis on the home stretch. That's next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch. Tuesday edition here on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here. 3 to 6 Eastern every weekday. And around the clock for free on demand on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. For that, check me out tonight on Kennedy on the TV side, Fox Business Network with my dear friend. That's in the 7 p.m. hour Eastern time. Set your DVRs or tune in live. Well, I teased it before the break. Let's talk about emojis. Wall Street Journal headline, looking for a panic attack emoji? You may be in luck. 31 new keyboard icons are expected to arrive by mid-2023. Fans are saying they could provide much-needed representation, even and perhaps especially the moose. Okay, so they've got a few of the expected emojis that are going to be arriving in a big infographic accompanying the Wall Street Journal story. I guess this panic attack emoji is one of the traditional yellow round faces, but blurred a little bit, like the head is shaking back and forth in rapid succession, looking a little overwhelmed. So there's your panic attack emoji, which will probably be very popular, especially among younger generations, given the crippling levels of anxiety that are affecting those generations. Then you've got some new colored hearts. You've got a talk to the hand emoji with all different skin tones. People seem very excited about the moose. And it is a very grand moose. I mean, these antlers are quite impressive. I see a donkey. That could apply nicely to some of our political texting. Also a jellyfish, which very much could also apply to politics and certain politicians. 
I see a goose. I see a blackbird, among others. Looks like there's a Wi-Fi emoji. There's some maracas. I wonder if that has been poll tested or focus grouped with the Latinx community. You might get some woke people upset about that. An Asian fan. That's bright red. So yeah, you've got you've got some new emojis coming. Here's what the story says. Emoji 15.0, a new set of keyboard icons up for approval by the Unicode Consortium, represents a small expansion of the already extensive emoji language. Yet the response to its pending arrival has been outsized. Quote, we're getting a moose emoji. This is not a drill, one person tweeted. Finally, a pink heart, another wrote. So it's just a lot of social media responses, basically, that they're quoting. Though the new icons, which are expected by 2023, the journal reports, might seem a bit niche, some users were excited to find previously missing representation on the keyboard. And on the story goes. So I would say that I use emojis a fair amount. I don't overuse them as much as some people allegedly do. I'm not calling anyone out in my social circle, but... There are some people who seem to rely more on these little icons than actual words. I know some people and some friends have like an ongoing bit where they try to only text or message back and forth using emojis exclusively. No words. I don't really have the energy for that. But I often scroll through and see what emojis I'm using most frequently. And in fact, I will ask the team to do the same thing right now. Producer Christine is on vacation, but I would imagine the panic attack emoji, when it becomes available, might become number one in her phone. Just given her level of anxiety as well, just generalized anxiety, which goes to show it's not only for the younger generations. It can be for the much older generations as well. We should make sure to clip that line and send it to her while she's on vacation. I'm sure she'll appreciate that. So I currently have... Near the top of my emojis, let's see, the dead emoji, the hmm, scratching your chin emoji. I've got the laughter with a single droplet of sweat emoji, and I have a cow emoji. And I also have a cocktail emoji. So those are near the top of mine. Dan, what are your most used emojis? Well, first of all, I would for sure use the panic attack emoji here and there, especially in this control room up here in New York. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. You had one of those yesterday. Um, I have my top one is that like nervous face with the wide eyes and the and the rouge cheeks. Yes. Like, whoa. Yeah, that's that's a big one I use. I have just a standard red heart that I use a lot. Okay. Um, And then to my girlfriend, we use a lot of the the kiss face one, the uh, kissing the heart. Oh, like the, the little heart coming off yeah, the lips? Yeah, the little heart. Yeah, exactly. Yep. All right. Adorable. Also, one of my standbys that's always, almost always in my, because it's, it's actually, they give you one, two, three, four, five times six. So there's 30 frequent emojis, at least, that I have on my iPhone. And the American flag is almost without fail one of them as well. All right, Quiet Wyatt, do you use emojis or do you text in old English? No, I use emojis. In fact, I am proposing that we select a day and we only communicate through emojis when we're planning the show. Just for one day. Let's see how it, how it goes. I think there could be some miscommunications on that. 
I don't know. I think it could be fun. I will say when I when I've texted with Christine in the past, and you guys have definitely been on some of these threads, there is very conveniently a carousel pony emoji and a death emoji. <laughs> and I put those back to back and I send those to Christine with some regularity because we all know what she did. We all know she from her trip tomorrow, so perhaps we can revisit this. But, Wyatt, I like the suggestion. Maybe we could do it not on a show planning text thread, but maybe one of our nonsense weekend text threads, which are less business-focused, less booking-focused, and more silliness. I would, be, I would be open to try it, and then we could discuss the results on the air. I don't dislike the idea. I do notice that you didn't answer the question, though. Okay, well, let me let me list them. The, the okay. crying, the crying, uh, laughing emoji with the tears yep. coming out. Um, the American flag emoji, very on brand. Very the, good. The um, the siren, the blinking siren for breaking news. Oh yes, like uh, like an alert. Yeah, very on brand for me as well. And then a taco because I had tacos last night. Okay, so that's just like a recency bias taco. I would imagine you probably use the coffee emoji a fair amount, given that part of your daily consumption, right? Um, no, but I have to say, hmm. the part of the new one is that blackbird, and it looks very much similar to the Rook you know, logo. You're right. Now that oh. I'm see, I'm now looking at it. That is close enough. I would say you can use that as a stand-in. Yep. No, it looks pretty similar, so I'm pretty excited about that because now I could just tweet and it could just be a little little blackbird like like uh, the Rook logo. I feel like there are occasionally emojis where I'm shocked that they don't exist. Like I search for them in the search bar and nothing comes up, and I think, how is it possible that in this, the year of our Lord 2022, we still don't have fill-in-the-blank, but I never remember to like write it down so I can't actually summon an example of this. But it happens to me from time to time. Maybe I'll have to set like a little homework assignment for myself to remember to do that. And I can send my complaints along to, what do they call this thing? The Unicode Consortium. I wonder, like, who is on the governing board of emojis? Who gets to make these decisions? Are there passionate debates and then votes where we were, you know, this close to, you know, God knows what emoji. And it failed by a single vote. Is there a filibuster? Right? Where just a handful or a certain percentage of the consortium can hold the whole thing up? I would actually read a deep dive. I would, into how this works. The politics and the decision-making behind emoji land. And because it's a consortium, does it apply to all the different platforms and devices whether it's a phone, whether it's, you know, a tablet. Is it Apple and Android? I think so. Wyatt, you seem to have connections, or at least you should at the Wall Street Journal. Let's get a series on this. It could be Pulitzer Prize winning. I would absolutely read every word of how this comes to be. I'm less interested in the, hey, look at these, whatever, couple dozen new editions. I want to know how the editions arrive. And how those calls get made and not made. All right, so you can work on that. Or we could just have Christine maybe call them relentlessly and have one of them come on the show and we could do an expose here 
ooh, that's a good booking assignment for Christine. You know, let's text her that while she's on vacation. And just to show that I'm serious, we'll do the carousel death emojis just to punctuate it. All right, back here tomorrow for more of the Guy Benson Show where Cookie should resume her duties. Same time, same place as always. Thank you for listening. See you on Kennedy tonight on the TV side and have a wonderful week. The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.